Christian Fellowship Church, in just a moment, I'll be asking you to turn to Revelation 20 so we can finish that chapter, a shorter chunk today. And so this will, unless the Lord has other plans, not be an hour-long sermon. Uh, But I don't want to just rush past this passage in Revelation 20. That is sobering. Uh, It should arrest our attention each time we read it. And we need to ask that the Lord would have his way in us so that we come away from this passage, uh, taking away from it what we should take. Uh, So please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we... We really can't prepare our hearts. We need you to do it. We ask you to do it, and we pray that you would give us the humility to approach Scripture uh, with reverence, but not just a reverence that is a cultural kind that maybe we grew up with or that we're used to, but a kind that really sits at your word with a yielding heart, a teachability. Um, a willingness to bend and to submit to what you say, what you teach us. Have your way in us, Father, with this verse, with these verses, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we're going to blink, and then suddenly you're going to see Christmas stuff in every store you walk into. Unless it's already there, I don't know. I was there, I was in a store a few weeks ago, there was Halloween stuff out. Thanksgiving stuff's probably already out. And when you get to that Christmas season, you know it's really there when you start hearing the music. And especially the old song about, you better watch out, because Santa Claus is coming to town. We love Santa, but you better watch out. If you really pay attention to those lyrics, he is keeping a list, actually. And he knows the naughty things you've done, the nice things you've done. Are you naughty or nice? It doesn't really tell you how to get from one list to the other. You're always weighing both things, aren't you? You're like, ah, there's naughty stuff, there's nice stuff. I don't know how that actually shakes out. As much as we like to maybe poke fun at old songs that sort of are intended to scare kids into obedience or dangle a reward for obedience, it's not an unbiblical concept. Not only that someone is watching, but not a, some old man that lives in the North Pole. Not a mythical figure, our creator. And he's keeping an actual list. Names on one list and names in another list. And that list has everything to do with naughty and nice. The concept actually is biblical, and that's what we find at the end of Revelation chapter 20. Here we see the great white throne judgment scene, and it's it's a courtroom scene with a judge sitting on a throne, and books are opened up, and the eternal destiny of every person who has ever lived is determined by which book their name is written in. The naughty nice list. So let's look at that as we unpack this last paragraph in Revelation chapter 20. I'll read the whole chunk and then we'll uh, make a few observations. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's a sobering passage that at every moment we are tempted to disregard and to treat it with the same seriousness with which we treat the old Christmas song. That would be a grave mistake. We see this opening line here. We've got a judge, and then you see who is judged, and then you see how they are judged. There's your passage. It begins with the judge. It talks about who is being judged, and then how they are judged, which is the book's. So first we see God is the judge who sits on his throne in this final climactic judgment scene. Those of you who have been with us throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen judgments already. There's plagues, there's locusts, there's the horses with the serpent tails, and there's the frogs that spew out you know, uh, from the abyss and smoke is coming out. And those are like preview judgments. Those are, that's God going, final warning, final warning, okay? Before I close the door to the ark, here's what a flood looks like. Let me give you little samples But then there's going to be one final climactic judgment, which is a pronouncement of a verdict, and then that's it. There's no more previews, there's no more warnings, there's no more, it's coming, it has come, and this is the final scene. And when we get to this great white throne, it's a white throne for the same reason that Jesus' horse is a white horse, it's purity of judgment, the judgment is faithful, it's true, Back in uh, chapter 19, we read about Jesus riding his white horse, right? That violent image of him coming with a sword and cutting his enemies down. He's riding a white horse because he, he judges it because he's faithful and true. It is righteous judgment. If we go, ugh, a good God wouldn't keep a list, what do you know what's good? How will someone who's not good know what's good? We need, we need to have good defined for us. And so this is teaching us that this is a final climactic scene that is from a God who's pure, who's holy. He sits on a great white throne that represents that purity. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. What's the, big, what's the problem with earth and sky? Why do they have to be pushed away? Well, sneak preview to next week, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And for a new heavens and a new earth, the old one's got to go, right? And so all of the corruption... All of the disease, all viruses, all right? In my opinion, mosquitoes are gone, or they're radically recreated, okay? And they come and they make you feel nice when they land on you. I don't know. (laughs) But these are cursed beings that are proof of Genesis 1 and 2. You know, roses with no thorns, right? This kind of idea of a, a cursed earth that is under judgment is done away with to clear path for what's new. And so it's, 
apocalyptic imagery used in the Old Testament for destruction. And we can talk next week about how literal or figurative it is, but it is a judgment scene. And there's no place for what was prior. Everything that was prior is over now. Like I said, no more previews, no more half judgments, no more restraining the devil and then letting him out. That's all gone. It's all over. It's all past. And so then what he sees is all the people who are going to be judged. Here's the judge. Even earth and heaven clear the path for the judge to speak the verdict. And who is he speaking a verdict over? Everybody. All, all who have ever lived and died, it says, I saw the dead, great and small. They're, the big ones, the little ones. The people you've heard of, the people you never heard of. The first in line, the last in line. The powerful, the rich, the poor, the hungry. I saw the dead, great and small. This is not about stature or height increasingly we have a version of the gospel where God favors poor people and condemns rich people. It's not true. It doesn't matter what your income is or how great or small you were in the world. You will stand before the throne. Books books are going to be opened up and you're going to sit there, stand there, and your eternal destiny is going to be determined by which book contains your name, great and small alike standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And we'll get to that in a second, but I want to continue to talk about who these people are. It says in the middle of verse 12, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what had done, what they had done. And then verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So death and Hades is the realm of the dead. Now some people say this is where Christ defeats death. He takes death and he throws it into the lake of fire so there's no more death. I don't think that's what he means. And some will say, I think he takes Hades, the place where people go, and he throws that in the lake of fire because there's no more holding place anymore. Well, that's true. There's no more holding place after this. But I don't think that's what this passage is doing. I think this passage is using what Scripture often does. And I'll, I'll give you a term. I think I've mentioned it before, but metonymy. You may not know the word metonymy, but you know what it is. If you're watching a TV show and a, a, one soldier is telling another soldier, hey, 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 we've got to do this. And like, no, we can't do that. And then the guy says, these orders come directly from the White House. What does that mean? Does the other character go, are you trying to tell me that big White House on Pennsylvania Avenue spoke? It's a building, you idiot. Who does that? Nobody does that. It is the people who occupy the White House who gave the orders, but we just call them, or the president, we call them the White House because of where they are. Metonymy is when you use a place to stand in for the person that occupies the place. Like if we were to say we worship the throne. We don't worship the throne. We worship the one who sits on the throne. But by metonymy, we're saying the throne because it describes what? Royalty. And White House describes authority. That makes sense? So death and Hades is not God getting rid of the place. It's not the place that's the problem. It's the people that are in the place. So I don't know about you. When, when I was a kid, I, just, I would read the verse like this and go, oh, look, 
the people who died at sea. Aw. All the people who didn't get a proper burial and they died out at sea, who were, who were believers or maybe unbelievers in this passage, you know, God doesn't forget about them. He still is able to rescue them even from the depths of the sea. But if you really look at the context, that doesn't make sense either. The sea represents the abyss. It's, it's symbolic of the same place. Death, Hades, the place where people go where it's dark, this deep abyss where people go that are being held. And with regard to unbelievers, it is a dark place run by evil spirits. Now, we don't have to debate, is that actually in the center of the earth or is it somewhere? Is it a spir- it's a spiritual dimension, all right? You can't physically go there. But that doesn't mean it's not a real place. It's a real place. And I think by use of metonymy, the text is saying everyone who is in that place, everyone who has died, they're going to stand. It's a resurrection. Now Daniel talks about this in his book, that all will be resurrected to life. I'm not sure how many of you knew this. All will be resurrected to life. Even unbelievers will be resurrected. And then there's either going to be on the other side of judgment and Daniel talks about the books being opened up. So John's getting it from Daniel. And everyone will be resurrected. Some will be resurrected to eternal life. And some will be resurrected unto everlasting contempt. Two unending experiences, but one is life and one is condemnation and death. So the judge is God the Father executed through Jesus Christ the Son. The judged are all who have died, not just who have died at sea, but all who, who are in death. And all of them will be judged according to these books. Right? And just in case we're like, I'm not sure if it's, if it's people. I still think he's talking about death. Look at verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he or she was thrown into the lake of fire. Do you see it explicitly right there? It's not talking ambiguously about death in general. It's the people who experience death. It's the people. I hope you understand this. this is, people try to skirt around it. This is just about the defeat of death. God wouldn't be so mean. Any person whose name, John, Frank, Sally, Sarah, it doesn't matter. People. Your name is in one book or the other. That's scary. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire three times. Lake of fire, lake of fire, lake of fire. It's a warning. And it's a fulfillment of promise that God doesn't just turn a blind eye to wickedness, but he deals with it. And so we see that this is the destiny of unbelievers, and I do need to make uh, a quick note here, although we dealt with it back in chapter 14, this is not the extinguishing of unbelievers, a position known as annihilationism, that those who are resurrected to life get eternal life, and those who are resurrected to death, they just get extinguished, they get blotted out, they get obliterated, so they don't exist anymore. Oh, that makes me feel better, right? That makes me feel better because you don't have eternal torment. The problem is back in chapter 14, we saw a preview of this scene, and it says torment. And that the smoke of their torment goes up 
forever. Now I ask you, if the smoke is going forever, how does smoke go forever if the fuel is extinguished? And so I don't think that there's room for seeing the second death as annihilation. The first death was an annihilation. Do you continue to exist after the first death? Yes. So why should you be obliterated at at the second death? Death doesn't mean cease to exist. It means a change of location. In the first death, you're separated from your body. Your body's in one place. God's going to resurrect it from somewhere, whether you died at sea, whether you blew up, whether you decayed. God's going to get those molecules from somewhere and resurrect it, right? That's what a resurrection is. It's a physical resurrection. And then the soul or the spirit is reunited with that body in that resurrection for everybody, not just believers. Everyone experiences that. So the first death is not in extinguishing. And according to Revelation 14, neither is the second. It's a durative experience but it's an experience of torment instead of experience of abundant life with God. I refer you back to Revelation 14 because that was a difficult message. But this is what it's picking up on. That lake of fire is is a place, not where people go to not exist anymore, but it's a place where they will carry out their eternal sentence of judgment. Well, Another thing I think we should quickly point out is that the emphasis of the book of Revelation is on what God is going to do with persecutors. And I want to be real honest and upfront about that. The book of Revelation emphasizes the persecutors, the people that attack the church, arrest the pastors, right? Throw Christians in Colosseums. The, the focus is on how God is going to deal with them, the people who killed Christians. And so you see, like in Revelation 6, Lord, how long? How long before you handle these guys that that killed us, right? And there's this emphasis. Jesus is riding a horse against who? All the nations that the dragon gathers to stamp out the church. And then Jesus comes riding his horse like, no, you don't. Okay? So there's this emphasis on those who rise up against the church. They bomb churches. They shoot churches. They arrest Christians, okay? Okay? whether it's government officials or random crazy people, it's the people who persecute the church that is the, the emphasis, but not to the exclusion of everybody else. So what I want you to understand is we can't say, oh, this isn't a, a real place. Oh, this is about God destroying the place, not the people. Oh, this is about God destroying the people, but forever, not a continuing experience. Oh, this is only about God destroying the people who attack the church, but my regular next-door neighbor who doesn't attack the church, he just doesn't want to follow Christ, he's safe. And that's not true, because as we've seen elsewhere in the book of Revelation, it's all those who take the mark of the beast. And if my interpretation is correct, the mark of the beast is not a UPC code that gets tattooed on your hand. The mark of the beast is rejecting Christ and continuing to live a life of idolatry. Whatever your idol is, fill in the blank. It ain't Jesus, it's something else. We all were built to worship. We worship something, we worship someone, and that might be ourselves. And then... Just another sneak preview, just drop your eye down to chapter 21, verse 8. Who experiences the second death? Look at it. Not just persecutors, look, the cowardly, the faithless. I mean, goodness, let's just stop right there. Have you always been bold for the Lord? Do you always stick up for Jesus or do you sometimes give it a pass and let it go? You don't want the, the conversation to get awkward. 
I do. I'm a coward. Am I always faithful or am I sometimes faithless? I'm in trouble. The detestable. Do you have things in your life where you're like, oh, I, I wish I could just expunge that from my memory. I'm ashamed of it because it's detestable. Have you ever done something detestable? If you haven't, you're probably detestable if you think that you haven't. You know what I'm saying? Cowardly, faithless, detestable for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I don't want to belabor that, but I hope you see the point. All of us are in that list somewhere. This isn't just persecutors. This is rebellion. This is rejection of God. This is living how we want to live. So this is a very sweeping, broad judgment. All who died are going to stand before the throne. All who ever lived, great and small, will stand before the throne awaiting their verdict. Now you see that on one side you have a bunch of books. Let's go back up to verse 12. They're standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. On the one side you have many books, right? Plural. A bunch of books are opened up. And then another book, one book, is opened up. And I think this speaks to the broad path and the narrow path that Jesus talked about. Everybody wants to go this way. How many people got saved in the ark? Most people? By far not most people. Now, in the end, many more people will be saved than in Noah's day. Thanks be to God. But it's the narrow path. It's the sum against the many. That's part of the temptation as you're reading through Revelation. Most people are not in these churches These are small churches that are trying to withstand and trying to be conquerors in a place that looks like you're actually being conquered. The majority doesn't experience that. The minority does. All these books with names, and then one book with names. Now, if you were just taking your chances, just mathematically, you're taking your chances. I think on Judgment Day, I think I'll be all right. I think I'll be all right. Naughty, nice list. I think, yeah, yeah. And then you stand there and you see 5,000 books in a stack. And that, if your name isn't there, you're, you're judged forever. You're, you're, your holding place will be the lake of fire. Or if your name is in another place, oh, what's the other place? That one book over there. That's daunting. The many books against the one book, they're all opened. Now, here's here's something we miss as Christians oftentimes. What determines whether your name is in one book or another is works. Now, we say all the time, you're saved by works, right? But sometimes we unintentionally take that to mean God doesn't care about works. God doesn't care about what you've done. Have we ever told anybody that? God doesn't care what you've done. He's loving. Well, then why do I need to repent? Why talk about sin? I'm getting baptized because I'm a sinner and he, he forgave me. Forgave me of what? He doesn't care. He does care. He does care. We can only be saved by grace, but we're condemned by works. And actually, we are saved by works. We just can't be saved by our works. 
but it's all about works in the end. He emphasizes it throughout the passage. The other book that was open is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books. What was written in the books? Just names? No, underneath those names is what we have done according to what they had done. And the sea and, uh, gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, here's another one, not by groups, not by groups. You're not going to be standing there judged by what your great-great-grandfather did, contrary to what a lot of Christians are saying today. Okay, you should come down the aisle and repent for white guilt or something like that. Group guilt. Now, I'm not letting any off the hook. I don't need group guilt to already be I'm guilty enough by myself. I don't need my grandfather's stuff on me. But it's each one, each name, and under your name is the stuff you did. Under my name is the stuff I did. And that's enough to condemn. Each one according to what they had done, repeated a second time in verse 13. So what we have here are books of works. God has recorded every work, good and bad. And in fact, this is how the book of Ecclesiastes ends. If you've ever read through the book of, if you've ever gotten to the end, let me just say that. Many of us have started the book of Ecclesiastes. It's quite depressing. You like work? Work is a waste of time. You like reading books? Books are a waste of time. You like gaining knowledge? Knowledge is a waste of time. You like marriage? Marriage is a waste of time. You like sleeping around? Sleeping around doesn't get you anywhere. Eating doesn't get you anywhere. Parties doesn't get you anywhere. Isolation doesn't get you anywhere. You're halfway through the book. You're like, what am I supposed to do then? You know how it ends? Get to work. Why? Why should I get to work if nothing matters? It matters to God. He's writing stuff down, so get to work. So the point of the book is nothing matters in and of itself. Anything you do that matters only matters because it's being written down in a book. That's why it matters. So the books here are opened up. They're recordings. They're logs, log entries of what we've done. Do you see it in the text? I'm not making this up, right? Now, is it a figurative Yes, I think it's figurative. Why? Because I don't think God actually needs a a, a celestial Moleskine journey and a click pen to write. It's here. But, you know, for us to understand it, it's saying, do you know how how we keep registries? You know how we keep logs? You know how coaches keep rosters? Right? You know how composers know all the musicians? Who they have? How many bass players do we have? He's sick. Who's next? Lists. And then under those lists, how good is that bass player? How good is that trumpet player? What have they done, right? Coaches, same thing. What's his record? What's his average? Okay, this guy's injured. Who's the next guy? Let's look at the numbers. What's the back of the baseball card say, right? So it's using imagery we're familiar with, not because they're physical books, but because God keeps a record of the things that we have done so that our judgment is just and true and right. It's according to what we've actually done and not his feelings on that day. So as we see these books opened up, and it's a daunting image, there's hope. Because, friend, there is no reason why your name should be in the big stack of books. Unless you just don't want to embrace Christ. Because the way to get your name in, from one book into the many books into the one book is not be a better person. It's not outwork all the works you did. It's not possible. 
the only way to get your name in the other singular book, the book of life, is by faith clinging to the work of Jesus Christ that he already did. That he, this is what doesn't make sense to us. It's like, I'm going to get to bat in the lineup because of someone else's back of the, their baseball card. I get to be the first trumpet player because somebody else was a good trumpet player. It doesn't make any sense. And then we kind of resist it because I want my stuff. I like my stats. I'm a pretty good hitter, man. But none of us bat a thousand, period. And that's what it takes to be in the Lamb's book of life. But the good news is you don't have to even stand up to bat. You already struck out, man. Someone else is going to stand in that box for you. And that's Jesus Christ. Take a look at this marvelous book. In the middle of this dark, dreary, gloomy judgment passage is the hope that we cling to. It's the hope that we proclaim. They're all standing before the throne, and and books, plural, were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, that has a longer title. And that longer title we found back in chapter 13, verse 8. Here's the longer title. The book of life of the lamb who was slain. That's the whole title. The book of life of the lamb who was slain. And then you see a medium length title in chapter 21, verse 27. Just the next chapter, verse 27. The lamb's book of life. You see how that book belongs to the lamb. It is those who belong to the lamb whose names are in that book. The slain lamb, the long title says, of the lamb who was slain. What does that represent? Well, for the same reason that a lot of the Egyptians lost their firstborn, and then only the Israelites who obeyed that first Passover rite kept their firstborn. Are they better than the the Egyptians? God is saying, no, no, no. It's because of the blood on the doorpost that death passes you over. And that's what I want you to celebrate in Passover, and that's what Jesus reinstituted with the Lord's Supper. I want you to remember the Passover. You get life because I took death. You get life because my body was shattered. My blood was poured out. And that's how I secure this covenant with you. I took it for you. So all your naughty works get put on Christ and his perfect righteousness gets put on you. Now, I would not wait around for that to make full sense before grasping it by faith. That is the hope that we have. And we can praise the Lord that he has made a way to get our names out of that big stack of books and into a different kind of book, a book that is not a recording of my own works, but a book that is, you know why, another reason why it's small is because it's the works of one person. So that book is names. These books are names and a bunch of stuff we did. This book is name and the thing that Jesus did. We belong to him, the lamb who was slain, for us, all those, imagery, all those images in the Old Testament of sacrifices so that the people of God can continue to live and dwell with him, that's why it's the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb specifically who was slain. His work is our righteousness and our wages of sin was his death. And that great exchange is what makes it possible to stand in this scene and not be a part of the many. To stand before the throne and, and not gulp and instead give glory to God. Because 
If somebody else is looking at you like, where are you going to be? I'm with him, man. The lamb. And we can praise the Lord that it doesn't take our efforts, it doesn't take our putting in enough time, putting in enough holiness, you know, to get it. So let me close with this. There's two audiences, and there are those who hear this passage, read this passage, and you're not in. And whatever that stubbornness is, that goes, ah, I don't like it. Ah, I don't like a God who would judge. I don't got it. It's just how it is. You might not like traffic, but if you drive however you want, you're going to crash. This is how it is. There is holiness, and we don't meet that standard. And people in the lake of fire are going to gnash their teeth at God forever. They'll forever hate him as being the unfair, bad bully guy and never appreciate the cross. But the way to transfer is to surrender to the cross, surrender to the idea that I'm a sinner, repent, and give your life to Christ. Say, Lord, I want to be with you. I, I ask you to forgive me of my sins, all the stuff that's in the books, all the things that I do that aren't of you, I ask you to forgive me in the name of Jesus Christ. And by faith, I cling to him for life. For the rest of us, I hope that this motivates us to live into it with gratitude. That my name should be in these books, but my name is in this book. That should change how we worship, how we sing, how we give, how we serve. And it should change how we talk to other people about the gospel. When you see your lost loved ones and your heart breaks, I know it hurts, but don't just kind of shut it off and anesthetize yourself from that hurt. That's the kind of hurt this passage is supposed to prompt. And we pray them in. We pray them in. You might feel like, I tried arguing and I, I tried apologetics and it doesn't work. The Lord has to break in. So pray for them. Talk to them. Don't give up uh, sharing the gospel with those who need it. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful to you for your grace. Even your grace in this passage, difficult, gloomy, dark, Lord, but we are thankful for that hope at the center. We're thankful for the book of life. We're thankful that belonging to it means to be, belong to Jesus Christ, the one who was slain on our behalf so we can have life. And we pray that you would motivate us to share the gospel with those who need it, those who don't own it yet. Give us grace to speak boldly, to not be cowardly, but to talk to people about this hope that can only be found in Jesus Christ, Lord. Massage that deep into our hearts, Lord, even as we close in this song. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.